Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to pick up at verse 14 and read through 19. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in 2 Timothy. Remember uh, this from the immediately preceding section. If we deny him, he will also deny us, was one of the statements that was made in there. Denying Jesus is a sin of the mouth, right? If we deny him, if we verbally deny him, if we um, deny him with the mouth, and it's a, it's a sin that's accomplished by speaking words, and that topic of the use of words is what the Apostle Paul elaborates on in the first part of our passage this morning in verses 14 and 15. The Apostle turns to the activities of false teachers and ever-present contagion in the body of Christ. False teachers generally like to use a subtle approach, right? Instead of blazing an absolutely new path they begin with subtlety, right? They tweak the words that are used, or they use words and intend a slightly different meaning than what traditionally has been understood by those meanings or a common meaning of the word. I think of the, uh, the new perspectives on Paul and the federal vision movement in the Presbyterian Church suffered from that sort of disputing. When they said justification, they meant something different than Luther meant when he said justification. And that led to all kinds of confusion. The Apostle Paul has been giving, has has given Timothy a deposit of teaching. He's he's deposited a teaching that he is to teach. um, And and he's just to teach what has been given to him, right? He's He's not to innovate. He's to take what's been handed to him, and he's to hand that on. And, and he's to use those particular words that have been given to him. False teachers like to dispute about those words, that deposit that's to be used. They like to dispute about those words. The false teachers are taking issue and always take issue with the, the clarity of the apostolic teaching. And so, as our passage says, Pastor Timothy is to remind them 
not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So what does it mean to wrangle about words? What does it mean to wrangle about words? Calvin says this, it's born from a foolish desire to be ingenious. Right? A foolish desire to be ingenious. Um, what does it mean to be ingenious? It means to be clever. It means to be original. It means to be inventive. In other words, to wrangle about words means to use new words to come up with something new. Here's an example. The church today, and this is on my mind because of General Assembly this week, but the church today speaks of same-sex attraction. right? Same-sex attraction. And it just seems like a very innocuous sort of uh, thing. That's a new phrase. It's a new way of describing someone. What, what words do the inerrant and timeless word of God use? Well, arsenikoitos, which means to lie with a man, man and malakoi, which means to be a soft man. Right? And so that's, that's very much different than same-sex attraction and very much more pointed. Um, and sodomite is a biblical word as well. That refers, obviously, to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So is there anything lost when we just simply refer to homosexuality as same-sex attraction? Well, of course. And those who shift away from biblical words relentlessly make arguments for those words, right? They, they defend and defend and defend and defend the use of those words, and that is the wrangling over words. It's the false teachers who are reusing and adapting and changing and being ingenious in wrangling over words, right? Those who shift away from biblical words relentlessly make arguments for those words, whether it be that it describes their experience more properly or it presents a, a more culturally sensitive version of things. But these new words indicate a massive shift in theology away from the testimony of the word of God and a massive shift in ministry. Here's another example from this past week's General Assembly. The president of Covenant Theological Seminary received quite a bit of heat um, for his seminary's support of the Revoice Conference, a conference that is just trying to change, uh, is trying to normalize homosexuality within the evangelical church in our denomination. It's being hosted at a PCA church, and the vice president of academics, who was my Hebrew professor back in the day, is presenting at that conference along with seven other CTS students and graduates. He was under enough pressure from our committee of commissioners meeting that he had to address the whole floor of the denomination, the whole floor of the General Assembly, and talk about their involvement. At one point in his short speech, he said this, and I just, uh, this is, this is wordsmithing, Okay. He said, here's a simple summary of what we believe about the sin of homosexuality. Homosexual behavior is sin. Homosexual lust is sin. And we're like, okay, that's, that's going well. We've, we've hit two very clear points, and, and I like that. Um, and then we get this. The temptation toward homosexual sin is not sin. Attraction to the same sex must be mortified by the means of grace and the support of the people of God so that it does not, as James says, conceive and give birth to sin. 
That seems like an okay statement, right? And then you think through it and you realize, no, it's not so okay. It's wrangling about words. It's using words that seem orthodox, but it's meant to leave a gap in meaning. The first two statements are clear and good. The second two are not. Why? Because they are saying that same-sex desires and attractions and orientation are not sin. Okay? And they are, and here's John Owen to help. This quote popped up on Facebook this week and is very helpful. Facebook can be helpful every now and then. Um, now, what is it to be tempted? It is to have those, it is to have that proposed to a man's consideration, which, if he close with it, it is evil, it is sin unto him. This is sin's trade. Epithumia. It lusteth. It is raising up in the heart and proposing to the mind and affections that which is evil, trying as it were whether the soul will close with its suggestions or how far it will carry them on, though it do not wholly prevail. Now, when such a temptation comes from outside of us, right, outside stimulation that tempts us, it is to the soul an indifferent thing. It's neither good nor evil. It's simply a temptation that has not yet affected us. But, but, um, if, it, if the proposal comes from within, within us, it being the soul's own act, it is sin. If temptations arise in the mind, like an orientation, like a disposition, that in itself is sin, because it is inner, it's your own actions that lead then to further sin. And so this, this distinction between outward and inward is very important when we even talk about temptations. Temptations that arise inwardly um, are sinful. Outside temptations that come before, a man, come before a man through his senses is neither good nor evil. This is the kind of temptation that Jesus faced. Right? And it's the only kind of temptation that Jesus faced, outside stimulation. Inner temptations attached, as it were, to our affections and desires are actual sins. So the disordered attractions and affections are sin as well. This is because of what? We're born sinners. We have a sinful nature. We have a fallen will, right? And so our Lord was not tempted in those ways. Why? Because he was not born of ordinary generation. Jesus was without sin. He did not have a sinful nature. There were no temptations that welled up inside of him that were sin and of themselves and that tempted him. Our Lord was not tempted in this way because he was not strapped with a sinful nature. So, you see, the, the words of President Dalby are not clear enough. They're not clear enough. And that's a president of a seminary. You think that a president of a seminary would be clear. But he's not being clear or he's being disingenuous. He's simply opening a gap to allow a place for the Revoice Conference to exist. Now, I think many pastors and elders think about this. I think many pastors and elders get bored with the words of Scripture. They just get bored. Bored with, you know, here we're going through Matthew again. Here we're going through Joshua again. Here, you know, the same, Paul's the same every time I open the Bible. And, and they get bored with it, and therefore they get bored with the teaching of Scripture. And at that point, the temptation to innovate comes in, 
right? The temptation to, to, for, for different sources of authority to come in. Calvin reminds us of how pastors should approach the teaching of Scripture. He says, The good minister ought never to be weary of exhibiting the teachings of the gospel, for they are the things to be continually handled, and that cannot be too frequently repeated. In other words, you can't get sick of the word of God. You can't too frequently go back to them. You have to stay with the word of God. And then he gets heated in his commentary on this passage. You can tell he's, his uh, veins are, are bulging a bit. And he says, God does not wish to indulge our curiosity, but to instruct us in a useful manner. Away with all speculations, therefore, which produce no teaching. No edification, right? Away with all speculations that don't lead to solid teaching. And so the goal of, our, of the teaching ministry of the church is to produce disciples of Christ. It, to lead us to be doers of the word. It is not to create snowflakes who have their own particular interpretation of what it means to flourish in God's world. That's not what it is. It is to teach this word. Right? There's, I mean, I just use that word, that word that gets wrangled over today. That, there's a, a word that's being used over and over and over again today in the Presbyterian Church in America, and that's human flourishing. I guess that's not a word. That's a phrase. Human flourishing. Everything is meant to bring human flourishing. Right? Is that a scripture word? That's not a scripture word. It may be loosely a concept, but today it's used to speak of the end goal of the Christian life, Christian flourishing, right? And to maximize flourishing. That, it appears to me, is just humanism masquerading as Christian. It's humanism. It's, it's, uh, it sounds so good, but it's misleading and incomplete and uh, as to the ends of the Christian life, Christian flourishing. And almost, it's, it's reformed health and wealth, right? Christian flourishing. Have great relationships. Have a, a, a satisfying job. Have um, a, a healthy church. I mean, it's just a reformed version of health and wealth. But it is by the old paths and the old words and the, the old ways that we are to grow in Jesus Christ, the old paths, right? The word of God is our standard, the light to our path. It's the sole source of knowing who God's is and what his will is, right? Those who desire to distract us away from the word begin to, by subtle wrangling about words, shifting words out because they're offensive and putting words in that are more more contemporary, more um, palatable, right? Instead of sodomite, let us talk about same-sex attracted persons. Instead of regeneration and sanctification, let us talk about human flourishing, right? Now, notice what the passage says about those, about this kind of wrangling about words and who it ruins. Who does it ruin? It ruins not the speakers, but the hearers. Not those who are speaking all this, but the hearers. Um, Doug Wilson writes, those who listen to stupid quarrels over words are torn down by the process. Those who listen. 
right? But those who engage in this kind of thing think they are doing good, which is what the Apostle Paul is concerned to deny. They think they're doing very good. It is those who have not had, I mean, so think about this. It's those who have not had their discernment honed who are dragged down by disputes about words, right? Everything just seems to sound good. And yet we have to have our discernment honed so that we can hear what's actually being said. It is the man in the pew, the reader of the latest books with all those new words and new innovative uses of old words. It is they who are led astray and ruined by those who are wrangling about words. They eventually are led to abandon Scripture by those who have already abandoned Scripture for some other authority, other source of wisdom. That's why part of my work as a pastor and part of our work as a session is to train you to have discernment, right? It's to train you to make judgments. It's to train you to be critical, right? Not to be the opposite of that, not to lay aside your discernment, we want more and more and more discernment, right? And so um, this often means pointing out the subtle errors of those who wrangle about words. It means pointing out the errors of those who are, who are teaching falsely. This often means taking the time to define terms and teach their history. This work often means opening your eyes to some of the flaws of even the most popular writers, Right? And, and certainly of the academics. This work means reading the old books that we do in Triple B. You know, that's all for the purpose of training our discernment. And most importantly, it means knowing God's word. It just simply means being committed to God's word, right? And the very words and the entire content of Scripture. This is what it means when Paul writes in verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. In the end, I think those who like to wrangle about words, what they are doing is is trying to seek the approval of men. Right? Those who wrangle about words are trying to seek the approval of men rather than as Paul commends to Timothy here the approval of God. With the changing fashions of our culture, think of it, with the changing fashions of our culture, certain scripture words become taboo or even what's now called microaggressions. Just certain words in scripture. The Apostle John, think of this, the Apostle John put the blame of the crucifixion on the Jews. Right? On the Jews. But our modern translators get itchy when, when any accusation is laid on the Jews for fear of being called anti-Semitic. And so they take the, the words of Scripture and John's use of Jews and change it to Jewish leaders, right? Which just builds in a little distance. So we're not condemning, like, Jews as a whole. We're just condemning a few uh, Jewish leaders, They don't want that accusation of anti-Semitism, so they change what's inspired by God in his word for cultural ease. And they are, as I said before, seeking what? They're seeking the approval of men. They're seeking the approval of men and not the approval of God. Who wrote Jews? The Holy Spirit did. Right? The Holy Spirit who inspired this book wrote Jews. 
but men have determined that they have more discernment than the Holy Spirit, and they changed the words. It was amazing. Um, it was amazing to me how we had to walk on eggshells around uh, a Calvin College-educated um, friend a few weeks ago. Every word we spoke was a potential offense. Right? If we said homosexual, if we said black, if we said tree hugger, if we used the wrong pronouns, if we used the generic masculine pronoun he in a sentence, if we referred to President Trump at all, right? all these words were potentially offensive. And our culture would wrangle with us about what words we can use and what words we cannot use. Right, and our liberal PCA churches teach us that words, um, the words that we can and cannot use to refer to those struggling with sexual sins, words are being now used in the PCA like sexual minorities, and no one even really knows what that means. So this is the soup that we stew in today, or this is the stew that we soup in. It's the muck that we sit in, right? Everybody wants to wrangle about words, and God's church simply wants to use these words, the words of Scripture, His words, because they are God-breathed and they are eternally true. What can this be other than seeking the approval of man rather than the approval of God? What can this be other than fearing man more than we fear God Almighty, the God who says that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment? Every careless word we speak. So notice the contrast the Apostle Paul makes between those lazy disputants who wrangle about words and what he calls the workmen. Right? There are wranglers about words, and then there are workmen. He calls Timothy to be a workman. Uh, don't be a lazy disputer. Don't be somebody who only communicates by text and never face-to-face. Right? Be a workman engaged in acts of labor. Then again, that, this again comes down to that truth that, that Bob Dylan sings about. Right? You've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. You can serve yourself, and you become a, if you serve yourself, you become a relentless disputer about every single little word. Or you may serve God, right? Becoming a workman who need not be ashamed. It's an amazing thing to see a workman who is good at his work, isn't it? Uh, the handyman who can quickly and perfectly put in bathroom tile. You know, without any blemishes, right? The bricklayer who can keep, um, keep slapping precisely the mortar and the bricks up and create a perfect edifice, right? Uh, the, the, um, the doctor who not only has good bedside manner but keeps up with the latest research and knows what he's talking about. The mother who can calmly shepherd six children through the grocery store, right? It's just something to behold, and, and um, also the pastor who accurately handles the word of God. In the pulpit, in his personal devotions, in his office for counseling. And that takes work. How many pastors do you think of as workmen? Of work as workmen. 
Um, I hope you think of it, think of me as that, as a workman, and Michael as that, as a workman, right? And the elders should make sure of it. The elders should make sure that we're being workmen in our task as pastors. And and um, what is the primary work to avoid becoming a mere disputer about words who misleads his hearers, but rather becoming a workman who accurately cuts, who accurately divides or handles the word of God. The workman has that one task, and the workman in the church has that one task. We aren't to bring you philosophy. We aren't to bring you psychology. We aren't to bring you the the latest political leanings of Rush Limbaugh, right, or the latest pontifications from the Atlantic. It is to bring you the word of God, the word of God. It is to apply to you the word of God and the word of God alone. And the workman, notice what he says, the workman is strenuously to avoid worldly and empty chatter. The apostle says, verse 16 and 17, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Have you ever seen a limb that's gangrenous? Michael's leg was a few weeks ago. I mean, and the spread of it, and the blackness of the flesh, and just the, it's the abnormality of it, and, and what you have to do to stop the spread of gangrene is lose a limb often, right? Well, what is, that's what worldly and empty chatter is like in the church. What is worldly and empty chatter? It is repeated conversations about worldly things, things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's to talk of the latest celebrities, right? It's to talk of the latest celebrities and their relationships, Right? How much ink is spilled in our country about celebrities and what they did last week? It's mind-boggling. It's to talk about the, your, your, your town's gossip. Right? It, it, did you hear what so-and-so did? Um, gossip and empty chatter. It is most of the stuff discussed on Facebook and all of the stuff discussed on Twitter. It is to cast insults about and have an uninformed opinion about everything, right? A quick, uninformed opinion about everything, no matter what. The dictionary definition of the word chatter is to talk idly, incessantly, or fast, right? Chatter, (laughs) like a a squirrel. The Greek word here is kenophonia, and literally could be rendered vain calling out. Is vain, vain noise, right? To, to that, Paul adds the word worldly or godless here. So godless, vain chatter, godless, vain noise, diarrhea of the mouth that does not lead to the edification of the hearer, right? Just bah. In Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Notice that those who speak graciously give grace to those who hear, and those who, who, who wrangle about words corrupt those who hear. I mean, the power of words is amazing, isn't it? The power of words to corrupt or to give grace. 
And so in Ephesians 4.29, Paul is saying not even a word, but to chatter means to spew words out as fast as one can. It's to, it's to let words get ahead of your brain, right? Does that ever happen to you when you're excited or when, when you're angry, right? The words just get way ahead of your thoughts even, perhaps, but they don't ever get ahead of your heart. They never get ahead of your heart. And what comes out of your heart proceeds to the mouth. With many words, sin is not absent, right? The pastor is not to be a talker. He's to be a teacher, not a talker. What is the result of godless and vain chatter, ungodliness and more and more ungodliness and more and more chatter? Chatterers create chatterers. Calvin says about those who speak falsehood and chatter about false doctrine. He says, if you once give entrance to them, (laughs) if you once let them start talking about false doctrine, if you once give them entrance, they spread till they have completed the destruction of the church. The contagion being so destructive, we must meet it early and not wait till it has gathered strength by progress, for there will be then no time for rendering assistance. You got to cut the foot off, right? You got to cut the hand off. That's gangrenous, or it will go all the way. And just as Calvin says, the Apostle Paul gets very specific in his instructions by calling out two empty chatterers in the church in Ephesus. I mean, he's being cruel, isn't he? He's naming names now. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Among them are. Think about that. Among them are. Hymenaeus and Philetus. The apostle Paul gets out ahead of those two men who he knows are destructive in the use of their mouths because he is not going to allow them to destroy the sheep. At General Assembly, uh, a dear older woman came up to me and confronted me on the things I had written about the Revoice Conference, and she said, among other things, that I was not being loving, that I was not showing forth the love of Christ. I responded that I was being a watchman. And it is not proper to be mealy-mouthed when sounding an alarm. You want to speak clearly, and you want to speak concisely. Um, I mean, can we please get this through our skulls today? Right? Why can't we get this through our skulls in the church? That to speak clearly is often compassion. To speak disgraciously obviously is not. But to speak clearly is helpful, right? It is, if, if, the, if the sound of the trumpet makes an indistinct noise, no one rallies, right? And so we must speak clearly. And so it was rather discouraging to hear her say that. Calvin expresses my thoughts. He says, if those persons who aim at the ruin of the whole church are permitted by us to remain concealed, then to some extent we give them power to do injury. It is true that we ought to cancel the faults of brethren, but only those faults, the contagion of which is not widely spread. But where there is danger to many, our dissimulations, our hiding, our moving into the background, and our being collegial is cruel, he says, if we do not expose in proper time the hidden evil. And why? Is it proper for the sake of sparing one individual that a hundred or a thousand persons should perish through my silence? 
Now, finally, the Apostle Paul rebukes these rebels, Hymenaeus and Philetus, these men who say that the resurrection has already taken place. Very strongly, he rebukes them in verse 19. He says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, that doesn't seem, it just seems like a rather obscure statement that the Apostle Paul is making there. But this first quote that he brings in is from chapter 16 of Numbers. This is the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, right? And if you sing Jamie Soul's songs, you know who Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are. Men who determine not to follow the commands of the Lord in the word of God. Let me read you a little bit of number 16. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on, and on the son of Peleth, Sons of Reuben took action, and they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown, and they assembled together against Moses and Aaron, whom God had raised up, and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his. That's the quote that Paul's using here in this passage. The Lord knows those who are his, or the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this, take censors for yourselves, core in your company. So they take censors, and then, do you remember what happens? What happens to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? The ground opens up and swallows them alive. Right? Because they had rebelled against Moses and Aaron and the Lord. Right? And so here, here is here's the Apostle Paul bringing in Korah, Dathan, and Abiram as a rebuke to Hymenaeus and Philetus preaching false doctrine about the resurrection having occurred. That is as wicked, if not more wicked, than what Korah, Dathan, and Abiram have done. They're intentionally misleading people. They are false teachers in the midst of the church. And so at some point, read Numbers 16 today and think through that. And so the his, that history is what the Apostle Paul brings up in order to rebuke false teachers in the midst of the church in Ephesus. God knows those who are his. And false teachers will be dealt with harshly. Why? Because God loves his sheep. God loves his sheep and he protects them from wolves. Right? So let us pray that he would do so. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray and thank you that you know those who are yours. Father, that you, you are jealous for your church, for your bride. And Father, we pray that, that as we are taught and as we learn that we would have discernment to 
discern between those who are, who are teaching falsehood and those who are teaching truth. And Father, we pray that we would do that, that we would hone our discernment by being students of your word, that we would read it every day, that we would know, know your will by reading your scripture. Father, that we would know you, that we would delight in studying you and learning about our Heavenly Father. Father, may we be diligent to do this, and especially your pastors and elders in the church. May they be diligent to rightly divide your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.